With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Hi, welcome back to Heard Tell. Okay, excited to have her back. If you missed her the first time she was on Heard Tell, Stop what you're doing, pause this, go listen to that, and then come back because she is fantastic. Thrilled to have her back. Finesse Moreno-Rivera, accomplished criminologist. She's a Young Voices contributor. She is really, really good on this stuff. Getting past the buzzwords, getting to data on things like justice, on things like criminality, on things like social justice. I'm so thrilled to have you back. Thanks for the time. Thank you so much, Andrew. It's great to be back. All right. We're going to talk about a hard one today. We're going to talk death penalty. Can we just start with some honesty before we get into stats and figures and and the emotions of all this? Let's let's just start with some honesty. Here's where I'm at on the death penalty. I would love I've been trying for years to talk myself into complete abolishment of the death penalty and never wanting to have it for any reason. But every now and then you just get that person that beat their kid to death with a ball bat or, you know, multiple serial killers with no remorse or you got war criminal. There's always that exception that pops up and stops me just short of that. Now that wars against, I understand the flaws in our justice system. I understand the limitations of our government run justice system. I understand they've got a whole lot of things they're not doing right. So I don't trust the process either. So that's where I'm at on it. You've got polling data. The polling numbers on death penalty are kind of coming down. Am I in the mainstream? Am I an outlier? Is there other people that feel like me or am I just a weirdo by myself here with that kind of an honest assessment of it? Absolutely, absolutely not, Andrew. And thank you very much for your honesty. You know, what the polls are showing, and, and me personally, I, I, I think that a lot of us feel the same way. What we're seeing is a strong six out of 10 adults who favor the death penalty. However, there's a huge caveat here in that they do believe that it is applied, it's not applied racially neutral, that it does not deter crime, and that it's also, um, a huge a huge talking point for everyone in that they're thinking about it should be applied to the most heinous crimes the most the most severe that you're thinking of you're thinking of killers or anyone of that nature but as we all know that's not how it's currently being applied at this time yeah and even the way it's written into our laws you know there's still a federal death penalty uh some states have abolished it like california some states have not like texas which is put in an express lane um you know everybody's dealing with a little different but even the way the law like you know for example sexual assaults and rapes are not qualified for the death penalty even though those are some of the most heinous crimes we have things like that like even if you're pro-death penalty just the nuts and bolts of the law the black and white of the law and the legislation to it there's a lot of gaps there's a lot of holes there's a lot of stuff that hasn't been updated in decades if not longer just the machinations of government on how we manage our criminal justice system is neglect a good word here where it's just kind of been left alone and we do all the debating, but it hasn't been maintained up kept and paid attention to in the proper ways. Is that fair to say too here? I think so. I, I really do. And it's definitely one of those hot topics where again, it can be very heated. Um, but it's one of those things where, you know, we, we should definitely have a death penalty, but wait, I don't want to be the one who, who does it. I don't want to be the person who stands up and says yes or no. Um, you know, it's really interesting too, when you said neglect, because I, 
for some states who even still have a death penalty, they haven't even, you know, um, executed anyone in over decades. Oregon, Pennsylvania, these types of states, so they still have the law on the books somewhat as a just in case, but they're actually just not even using it. Yeah. And you're writing in the counterpunch. I, I say this every time somebody's on, but you really need to read this piece. It's got a ton. I think I counted 38 links in this thing. There's a ton of links, a ton of information. You need to read the whole thing. Decide for yourself. We've linked to it. Make sure you go through the piece because it's way more than we're going to get to today. But when you just start stacking the data up on this stuff and you go all the way back to the colonies of the Americans and start talking about the death penalty, when you just start going through the data over and over and over again, Break it down. What's a theme that you see when you see those big data sets? Because the numbers, your eyes just start moving. Did you see a theme that's consistent when you're looking at the data of the death penalty in America for the last 260 odd years? There's, there's quite a few themes. You know, you can one can definitely say that there's a political theme. Um, we all know the death penalty is utilized and also um reinforced and brought back up depending upon our administration. Um, perfect example would be Trump was continuing um, the executions when he was in office compared to Biden, who's really um, slow rolling through the process as of right now, if not halting all of them. There's actually still a racial theme. There's a theme of negligence. There's, you know, there's, there is a lot that's going on where it's, you know, applied unfairly. Um, there's, there's, it's completely unstandardized. I mean, when you really are looking at looking at the data and everything stacking up, it's a bit shocking that it just seems reckless how we are applying this and then also how we are carrying out the executions themselves. Yeah. Vanessa Moreno Rivera joining us. Let's talk about the way we carry executions out, because this is something I don't hear people talk about very often. Look, I'm a history guy. I, I study history. There's been a lot of different ways to kill people when you need to kill somebody. All right. There, there's an, you know, it's like the movie Million Ways to Die in the West. You can execute people a lot of different ways. Mm -hmm. One of the things in America is we have used lethal injection pretty much exclusively with a few very rare exceptions for quite some time now. So we got a long data set on this. One of the inherent problems is, though, in our quest to have the most humane execution possible, we also picked one of the most complicated methods of execution possible. Like, it's not a simple process to do lethal injection because people, oh, you just put a needle in. No, that, that's not how that works. Talk about that, because at the core of when we start talking about government incompetence, or we're going to talk about the FDA part of it and the medical part of it, or we're going to talk about the morality part of it making a more complicated way to executing people that made a whole bunch of problems in itself. And then that just starts to really stress test all the other fractures that's in this process to begin with. Absolutely. So um, as listeners may or may not know is the reason why we do have a death penalty and why it may not be looked at as a violation of our eighth amendment amendment against cruel and unusual punishment is because our our Congress looks to us, the American sample of people who are on juries to say what the our society you know, sees as being cruel and unusual. And to us, because we continue to lean towards the death penalty, that's why we still have it. With that being said, we're also looking at the idea of our society evolving in how we operate within executions and just being the decency is actually the, the nomenclature that is that is utilized within the constitution. 
So with that being said, you're looking and trying to execute someone in the most humane way. And so as you can see throughout history, we have tried various different techniques such as firing squad or gas asphyxiation or hangings. And that's where we landed with lethal injection because it's what you just said, Andrew, you would think, okay, you just put a needle in and everything is done. However, there wasn't a lot of consideration as to how we would be able to keep up with the need for the chemicals utilized for the executions or who would be administrating them. You think about needles, you're automatically going to think about a doctor, right? Well, you have to consider that doctors have ethical concerns because they're here to help us, to actually give us life, not take it away. So what you see is that there are some doctors who are involved in executions, but they're not, you know, yelling it from the rooftop or, you know, talking about this with their colleagues. That may just be their moral, moral and value thinking, okay, well, if anyone should be doing it, it should be me. But what we're seeing a lot of is with a lot of these stories are that um, those who are participating in these executions are, you know, there's there's plenty of um, autopsy reports that come out that, you know, they're they're seeing multiple holes, they're missing veins, it's taking a very long time for individuals to pass because of the products that they're using aren't what they are supposed to be. As I, I don't want to get too far ahead here, but. The main problem with lethal injection is that we actually don't have the correct medicines to use, the correct combinations in order to humanely execute someone. And in the beginning, Oklahoma, who is really out there right now in the news with a lot of their box executions, they were actually the very first individuals or they had, excuse me, um, a doctor who had come up with the three three ingredients for performing executions. In the very beginning, the whole thought was that it would feel as though the inmate is falling asleep, so their heart is actually stopping. However, what we now know is that the three ingredients actually builds up fluid within the lungs, so it makes the inmate feel as though they're drowning instead of actually just falling into a deep sleep and their heart stopping. So, we also know the FDA can't regulate these um, these substances, but I'll get to that as well. But you know, just really quickly, because lethal injection is fraught with a, a lot of issues when trying to come up with these chemicals. Just a few days ago, it was announced that Alabama was going to try to pursue utilizing the nitrogen asphyxia, which also was brought up by Oklahoma legislator there based on a paper from a criminal justice professor who isn't a scientist, who isn't a medical profession, looking at nitrogen. As we know, we need oxygen to breathe. So if you replace that with nitrogen, then you're gonna start to feel, it'll, it'll work as, as, as though it's gas asphyxiation, pretty much. But the paper is only based on the effects that pilots or scuba divers have experienced whenever oxygen has been taken away and they're just naturally breathing in nitrogen. So yet again, what we're seeing is, you know, just a play on people's lives, just trying to figure out what we can do to humanly execute these individuals when really it's just we're just we're just testing it as we go. Save big money now on new siding from LP Smart Side at Menards.
update and beautify your home with your choice of 13 timeless colors of pre-finished engineered siding. It's durable and includes a Sherwin-Williams factory finish paint warranty that means no painting for years to come. View our entire selection of siding from LP SmartSide today. And don't forget to check out our flyer on Menards.com for all the great deals happening now. Save big money at Menards. Yeah, Finesse Moreno Rivera. I don't want to be macabre about it, and I don't want to be flipping about it, but let me just say it for the sake of the conversation, because this is a grown folk adult conversation about this topic. It's a tough topic. When you really get down to it, there is no humane way to kill another human being. You got to kill them. Like, you, you have to stop them from living, whether it's in combat or whatever else. When you, if you're going to kill somebody, you got to do it, and you got to follow it all the way through. And the problem is human anatomy and human physiology and medical science, that's going to be a little bit different for every single human person because they chemically react to things differently. And they're, you know, people are tougher than some other people. And there's some medical science stuff that we just can't explain scientifically. We just can't. That part of it is where the morality of it comes in is because you talked about the botched executions and how horrible they could be. You noted one in your piece that went over three hours trying to get it done. The fact of the matter is, though, how do we reconcile those two things? Because it's like, look, whether it takes 90 seconds or 90 minutes, you're still killing a human being. The morality of that is something that we can't quantify in all that data set you have. So how do we deal with that part of it? I think that's really interesting because when it comes down to it, and I, I was really thinking about this and how to frame my thoughts or even try to consider what others may be thinking when listening to this or what others have thought, right? That, like, again, this is a very hot topic. I think that this comes down to your values and your morals. And we know that that shouldn't be a part of our criminal justice system, that that, that truly should be apart from just looking at facts. But what it comes down to is that's what it is. We're actually saying it's okay to kill someone. And I think that a lot of people have a hard time accepting that and talking about that because then you come into the conversation of thinking about, well, does that make me better than the person that we are executing? And at the end of the day, does it? I don't know. Maybe it does. Maybe it doesn't. Also going back to what we're looking at, who are we executing? What have they done? You know, everyone's morals and values are different. And we also don't want to talk about, number one, the political lean, how these individuals are pawns. But then also we don't talk about the religious aspect of it as well. You know, uh, religion really does underscore a lot of our laws and a lot of our criminal justice system, whether we like it or not. We try to we try to say that they're separate but they're not. So, you know, I think it comes down to morality and values to say that, yes, I'm okay with killing someone. And that may mean that you're not better than the person that we're executing. Yeah. Vanessa Moreno Rivera is the heart of the problem of this debate though, is it's one thing to say on Twitter or Facebook or even in a courtroom, because you just mentioned the, you know, the judge still says it, God have mercy on your soul. When you give the death sentence, it's still in there isn't the core of this problem is it's one thing to say it. It's one thing to say it in the courtroom, but then some human being has to go and do that. And oh. I really wonder when we discuss this and I do it all the time. Like somebody does something is like, yep, put them under the jail. That's a, that's a horrendous crime. And we all have that natural reaction. 
I wonder if it would change how we view this debate if we just skip ahead to the parts like, okay, this person has done something so bad that they need to be removed from society for the good of society. Are you willing to do the deed to get that done? Because I yeah. think that changes the whole perception on the whole thing right there. Absolutely. So there's there's two things that I like to comment about that. Number one is whenever I was referencing the poll earlier, that was from Pure Research Center. And, you know, I'm really happy that they did include this as a caveat that depending upon if this is an online poll or this is a phone call, that really skews how people answer and how they feel. Right. I mean, that's that's a given. If you're talking to someone on the phone, you're, you're definitely going to want to skew a different way compared to having that autonomy behind behind your your computer right behind your screen you know another thing as well is i don't i don't know if you follow a lot of youtube channels but there's one called soft white underbelly andrew have you heard of that before i have one but i've not seen the youtube channel no okay so soft white <laughs> soft white underbelly <laughs> is made from i want to say his name is mark um Leda. And what he does is he primarily operates out of California and, and talks to individuals on Skid Row. He talks to people who are drug addicts. He'll talk to Johns. He'll talk to pimps plus with their prostitutes. He'll talk to prostitutes. He'll talk to gang members. He'll talk to people who have been shot. He'll talk to kids who are homeless. Um, he does follow up on individuals. I mean, it's absolutely amazing. And what's great about this channel compared to something like intervention on A&E, which I think is completely exploitive and you really don't learn anything, is that it really shows you empathy. It shows you as, you know, as a person watching, you know, society and who an individual is. It's almost humanizing. So just yesterday, I pulled up, I pulled up his channel and he had an interview with a warden slash executioner. And I mean, this guy was from Alabama, very straightforward guy, seems, you know, no, no whistles and um, bells. And, you know, when Mark said, what does it feel like to have to execute someone? And he said, you know, I don't lose any sleep about it. It's my job. And when it, when the clock strikes 12, I hit that button and it's done because what they had was an electric chair. But the one thing that stuck with me is that he said that I, I treated them as a human being up to that single point. Me and my guards, that's what we did. And he said the number one thing and the reason why he could sleep at night is because that he knew that that person, without a doubt, was responsible and that needed to be sentenced to death. And he said nine times out of 10, these individuals would confess right up to the point they're walking to the chair. And I think that also is a great segue as well. We're talking about the Innocence Project, but that's that's a whole nother, that's a whole nother topic. But again, check that out, Soft White Underbelly. Um, he, but it, you could tell too, he wasn't, it wasn't something that he looked forward to, but it was something that needed to be done at the end of the day. But that was, that was his job, right? We're not talking about people who just sign up, who just want to experience it, which I think is completely unethical, but that's, a, that's also another story. Vanessa Moreno Rivera, we're talking about the morality of it. It brings us back to what you dovetailed your piece in at the Counterpunch. Again, you need to read this whole thing because she has just stats galore and links all over this thing. It's well-researched like her stuff always is. That's why we're happy to have her on. 
we're talking about the morality of this. The fact of the matter is part of the morality of being able to execute someone is, well, we followed the letter of the law. You know, you make the law the bad guy. Okay. The court, you know, a jury of his peers and the court and the legal system and all the appeals, we should have our hands clean in this execution because the entire justice system says this needs to happen. We can't say that with a straight face right now because the way the drugs are set up, the way the process is set up, the way the laws are set up, and you detail it in your piece to great detail, pretty much every execution right now is in some shape or fashion going outside of the written letter of the law to get done. And that's just the fact it is right now. So if I'm going to be morally consistent, even if I understand that we should have a death penalty in some ways, you can't do the right thing the wrong way. So just the morality of it not being done correctly brings us right back to this moral imperative of we have to fix this system or we need to not do it until we get it fixed. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because as of right now, we are operating outside of the wall just to get these executions done. I mean, you know, with the state's regulations and even the federal regulations are just shrouded in secrecy. We don't know what's being done. We don't know where they're getting these chemicals from because they're, they've been outlawed by the government to be imported from other countries. So, you know, at this point, we're operating legally to, to you know, keep these executions going. And by going, you know, Oklahoma's on pace to execute two people, I think, a month at this point. I And, and they have continuously been in the media for botch executions as well. Yeah, Finesse Moreno-Rivera joining us. There are 26 states that have secrecy protocols surrounding um, how executions are done and the people that are involved. This is this is where we get from the morality. We can get into some regulation here because this is a government operation. It's a law enforcement function. I understand there needs to be protections of the executioner. You know, the old trouble about the executioner having the hood over his head, right? Like, okay, the executioner needs some needs some protection and they need some privacy and they need some anonymity. I don't know that that needs to extend to every single person involved, though, because it sure seems to me when we're looking at these, how do you have accountability? How do you make sure training standards are up to snuff? How do you make sure they're properly trained and know the procedures ahead of time? Because this is one of those things, look, you're only getting one shot at these things. Like, this isn't like something like, oh, we'll just do it again tomorrow if it doesn't work, right? Uh, you're there for the duration. And like, you had this horrific botched execution that took three hours. Does these secrecy laws need to be looked at or at least look at the procedures like, okay, one or two people need anonymity, but the rest of y'all, we need to have some accountability here. Absolutely. You know, to me, there should only be at the, at the most two people within the room. Um, there doesn't, there shouldn't be more than that. And everyone should have a reason as to why they are, whether that's the warden and then a doctor, preferably a doctor, but then that's it. There should be some type of accountability because then to me, you're also just shrouding in secrecy, your, your own morals and your own value. You're just hiding behind something because you, you, you maybe you're just scared to admit it to yourself. Maybe you're scared just to admit it to, you know, the people who you work with, your family, your friends, society as a whole. There's no reason why we these regulations should not be transparent. And the fact that they're not just, again, goes to show that something just isn't right. Yeah. Finesse Moreno-Rivera joining us. You talk about the Eighth Amendment. It has pretty vague language in this regard. 
that's not unusual in the Constitution. It has a lot of vague language in it because the idea was, well, this is the overarching thing, and then you states go figure it out and make legislation for it. So in and of itself, that's not an evil. But there is room for legislative fixes here. We're not going to change the Eighth Amendment. That's not going to happen. What legislative fixes should be worked towards here? Even a state that wants to have the death penalty, what should be some of the things they're working for? Should it be the FDA gap where the FDA is no longer regulating the drugs? Should it be the medical staff that's involved that actually physically does these, like some kind of a specific training for them uh, since most doctors won't do it? You know, do you do you, whatever that may be? Is it a law enforcement fix? on the system that gets them there. What's some of the legislative things? Because that's an attainable goal that we should be working towards. Oh, goodness. There's so many. <laughs> so if we were to start at the very beginning, let's just look at um, how states judicial systems are set up. So a perfect example, Andrew, you know, you mentioned earlier Texas because they are way ahead of any other state. I believe it's Texas, Florida, and then Virginia for the most executions. The reason why Texas for multiple reasons besides racial disparities, um, has such a high number of executions is predominantly based upon how its judici judicial system is set up. So number one being they have elected officials and those elected, elected officials are going to really be the voice box for you know the population, which for Texas, they have a lot of proponents for a death penalty. Number two would be that they don't have a public defense system set up. So whenever someone who can't afford an attorney is has a capital case and they're sentenced to death, they are using a court-appointed attorney who may not have or may not be as seasoned with, you know, capital offense um, cases, such as working with someone who's working, been on, the, you know, about to go on a death penalty, uh, they're overworked, um, list goes on. But, you know, another interesting thing, too, is it wasn't until the 90s that Texas allowed for jurors to consider mitigating evidence. Mitigating evidence, as we all know, is a huge factor um, because that's, you know, including things such as your mental health or anything from your youth. I know that the, um, the Florida shooter, there's a case going on right now, or excuse me, a trial. And a lot of proponents are, or proponents who are excuse me, opponents against the death penalty are saying, look at his background, look at his youth. You know, he's, his mother drank a lot. He has a lot of mental health issues. So definitely number one, you look at, your, you know, the state and how its judicial system is set up. So Texas is a perfect example. Number two, you know, just getting the FDA involved. And I know that goes really against their oath of protecting, protecting the United States citizens. But at the same time, someone needs to be regulating these drugs that are being utilized. Number three, bring in scientists, bring in doctors. There should be scientists who are coming up with these quote unquote cocktails that are being utilized to execute individuals. There haven't been. They are literally just these individuals who work for these prisons and just come up with and say, oh, I think X, Y, and Z would work because this will stop the heart, this will stop the breathing. And we know that there's no science that's backing all of this, but these combination of drugs. And like you mentioned earlier, not one thing is going to work for everyone. Everyone's different. Um, you know, also making sure that, you know, we're keeping out, you know, um, foreign imports, making sure that we're making, you know, having a really tight home regulations about what's being used. So there's so many things that need to be done. Um, and also standardizing protocols. There is no standardized protocol, which to me is just 
insane thinking about we're actually executing someone and there's no protocol for it. Everything's different, whatever, you know, it's kind of like whatever they say goes. And I, there's just so much that needs to be done policy wise that it's almost like, you know, where do you start? Well, our friends that are against the death penalty in total will look at you and throw their hands up and say some very unnice words and go, well, that's why you ban it. That's going to be their answer to that question. Right. Is, is there a refutation to that other than the you know 30 minutes we just spent talking about it? You know, I would like to see it banned, but at the same time, it's it goes back to that moral values. It goes back to religion. It goes back to the politics. And it also goes back to, you know, I sincerely can say that I have never lost anyone close to me and been in the position of knowing that that and it's like the that the perpetrator is sentenced to death. I, I can't sit here and say that my mind wouldn't change if it wasn't my mother, my father, or a family member. Um, I, I don't know, but at this time, what I feel is that if we're going to do it, then it, we better be following the, the letter, the letter of the law. We better be doing it the way that we should be doing it. Um, because if we're not, then what's the point? Then we're just killing someone. Yeah. Vanessa Moreno Rivera, you do all this research on an analysis on the justice system. We have to bring this up because I think it's the only it's only fair to discuss this. There is a large strain of thought when it comes to the death penalty that even the people that do some of the more heinous crimes, <laughs> heinous, that's not a word, even some of the folks that do the most heinous crimes, um, people will say, look, most of those people, it wasn't their first offense. It was multiple offenses. The system creates them. And now we're going to use the system to kill what the system created. I don't go quite that far with it, although I'm I'm empathetic to some of that in certain circumstances. I don't think you can broad brush it that far. But that's something a lot of people feel, especially people who are basically, you know, career institutionalized criminals who have spent mo most of these folks on death row have spent most of their lives in prison because of how long it takes. What about that argument? Because you've done the data on this. You know, those people, you know, I think the average in death rows, you know, decades. What do you say to that? Of like, look, we're creating criminals to kill something we ourselves created. That's immoral in and of itself. I don't necessarily describe to that, but I understand the argument. I understand the argument, too, but I, I, I'm, I'm with you. You just can't make that broad, that broad stroke. You 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 just can't. You honestly can't. I mean, we we definitely create it. We are a society who we punish rather than empower and help and intervene. But at the same time, I, I don't think that I can completely agree with that. It's talking about the death penalty as punishment. One of those things that's a linguistic thing we should stop doing because it's not really a punishment. It's an intervention. You know, you're not punishing them. You're killing them. That's that's the end. That's a period. That's that's there's nothing after that. Should we be changing the language, how we discuss these sorts of things? Is it a nomenclature problem on top of everything else where we're still talking about it like it's the Wild West and we're hanging people when this is really almost, I hate to say sanitized because you're still taking somebody's life, but it's years of courtroom and it's years, it's it's such a long process now. Do we need to just change how we talk about it altogether? I, absolutely. Absolutely. I think that we all need to just sit down and be honest with each other and, you know, 
say what it is. You are taking someone's life. You are killing someone at the end of the day. That's this is what we're doing. I mean, it, it's a long process. I mean, it's a that takes a lot of money. And, you know, on top of that, we're not even really sanitizing anything. You know, we still have rampant crime. We're still, you know, sending people to the chair. That's what, you know, that's an old, again, old nomenclature, right? Um, it's, it's not an intervention. It's not sanitizing anything. We still have criminals, you know, every single day doing horrible things. And it's it's not deterring them. I mean, there's plenty of research that's out there that's saying it's, it's not a deterrence. It, we are literally just killing someone just to say an eye for an eye. That's what this is. Yeah. This is one of the harder topics to discuss because it's life and death and it's it's life and death with government sanctioning, which is really hard to get into the morality of it. But Finesse Moreno Rivera, I so enjoy having you on. We're going to do a long form on this because there's a there's a whole piece to this on the medical side uh, that we just kind of brushed by. But we really need to get into because there's a lot of ethics and things that go into that. And there's a lot of government regulation that needs to be fixed in that. So we're going to have you back. We're going to do a long form on this topic because there's so much to do on this. Um, and I want to read up on a few things before I get into it because you're a lot smarter than I am. So I want to I want to do some research and be boned up for it. But we're definitely having you back. Can you let folks know where they can follow you and keep up with what you're doing between now and they get to see you again on Hertel until we get you back, my friend? Of course. Thank you, Andrew. Um, recently, I uh, created a Twitter account so I can be found at Finesse Marino. And then also I can always be followed on my LinkedIn where I um, continuously uh, upload any articles that I have completed through Young Voices. Fantastic. And um, I'm going to get you on Twitter Supper Club. We got to get you involved on that because that's, <laughs> that's one of the great things on Twitter is us doing our food stuff all the time. So you might maybe you can start Twitter Orchid Club or something. You can do that with all it. your wonderful your lovely orchids back there, which is why we really have you on the show. So we can look at your orchids. Um, <laughs> we kid, you do great work. We greatly appreciate you. She's also a young voices contributor. You can see all her stuff on her page. Let's do a lighter topic next time because I always enjoy talking to you, but you all look, you do criminality. This is what you do. I, I know, you know, it's, it's so funny. My fiance recently said, you know, why can't you just write about something happy and good? So I think I'll be doing something on prison reform here, um, here soon. So hopefully next time you have me on, I'll be talking about um, some good things that have been happening within the criminal justice realm. We all need some good news too. So that'll be great. Finesse Moreno Rivera, you are fantastic, madam. Thank you so much for the time today. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you.
Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. We're talking about the war on drugs, which is one of the worst named things ever for something that has been highly destructive, very expensive, and has gotten us nothing closer to what it was set out to do. We're talking to Finesse Moreno-Rivera about it. Um, let's talk some of the policy stuff here. You walked us through it in your piece and Blavity. We're linking to it like we always tell you. Please read the entire piece for yourself. And she links to a lot of source documentation that you also need to read up on this. Look, information is the key to a complex issue. And this has a lot of information in it. Um, before we get to Biden, you already mentioned him. Let's back up. The Trump administration in 2018 did some temporary class widening scheduling of fentanyl stuff. This has repercussions. But for folks that don't know, when we're talking about the drug classes and that sort of thing, what is it and what does it mean when they do things like that? Usually what this means is that they can be very much harsher punishment for individuals, no matter the weight or the amount of a given drug. So this is very similar to looking back at crack cocaine itself. We're looking at the sentencing disparity in the amount of the drug itself. So instead of looking at the harm that it causes, it's really looking at, at the amount that the individual may be possessing at the time. Yeah, and you have the stat here that uh, the majority of offenders arrested on this program are black street-level dealers at the end of the drugs distribution chain, not the movers and the distributors that, you know, they claim that they're normally going after. Law enforcement like everybody else. They like to get the lowest hanging fruit. Quoting you here, very few incarcerations have mitigated the availability supply of fentanyl. As of 2019, 75% of individuals prosecuted and sentenced for the fentanyl offenses were people of color. But then the next paragraph, you bring it up, the real problem here, the Biden administration, they also extended the scheduling policy last year and this year both. What does it mean in practical terms that they continue to continue this policy? To repeat myself. Absolutely. What this means in layman's terms is that they are continuing the same thing that they did with crack cocaine in that unfortunately what we're starting to see is that instead of seeing the suppliers, the individuals who should be incarcerated, we're seeing these low level, we're seeing these low level individuals who are providing the drugs, predominantly African American, going back into the jail and prison systems due to their involvement with fentanyl. This isn't ever, you know, this is whack-a-mole. If all you're doing is hitting the street level stuff and you've got the stats in your piece about how much of this comes through from overseas, how much of this goes through government controlled points of access, they, they're not stopping this stuff. They're just getting the street level folks. That's doing absolutely nothing for the wider problem other than, you know, filling the prisons up with street level people who are mostly repeat offenders anyway, right? Absolutely, Andrew. And unfortunately, right now, what we're seeing with our incarceration rates is about 85% of individuals who are currently incarcerated are incarcerated given their use of drugs or selling of drugs. So this really isn't doing much of anything. However, looking back at Trump's administration, the move is what they thought was good at the time, considering that fentanyl, the source is predominantly from China. And although China has tried to regulate their fentanyl chemical manufacturing again criminals will be criminals they always be finding this loophole and so what you'll find is a lot of individuals such as myself can get online facebook um, or the dark web and able to purchase chemicals that are similar to fentanyl and create my own products myself and then sell it on the street 
and as you bring up in your piece, um, the problem with, you know, prohibition, which is just we're going to have this war on drugs and it's going to be this massive federal funding and it's the main income stream for law enforcement and right on down the line is it exacerbates all the problems already inherent in the system. Racial biases, drug overdoses, disease, corruption, uh, the violence that goes around it. All of that gets exasperated because now it's a business model on top of being a criminal philosophy of trying to abate crime, right? Yes, absolutely. It's a, it's a perfect business model if you think about it. I mean, unfortunately, what's happening is, is again, people of color are the ones who are paying the price for this. No one's really taking any, no one's really taking any type of responsibility in admitting that what we continue to do is wrong, what we have done is wrong, and we're still continuing to make the same mistakes. Black individuals are the ones who continue to pay for these mistakes as well. And unfortunately, what we're seeing now, especially with Biden's extension for fentanyl, it's not getting any better. And although he may be enacting these harm reduction programs, he still is not doing any better with keeping black, predominantly black males out of jails and prisons. Now, there is some good news on this. You took a public health approach to some of your solutions that you would like to see put out. Um, Black Americans statistically do respond really well to public health programs. We've got statistics. They do. So what's a couple of the things you were pointing out that they should take more of a public health and prevention standpoint than a punitive and law enforcement standpoint that might actually do some good here? Absolutely. Some of the solutions include safe injecting sites. I know that there was a lot of uproar on um, online as well as a lot of jokes with Biden mentioning with his harm reduction programs, you know, syringes, for example, free syringes. That's a big deal because that also prevents diseases. So I know also there was a lot of pushback from the communities for safe injecting sites. Let's be honest, who wants a safe injecting site right down the street, say from, you know, their, their kids' school or right around the corner from their from the neighborhood. So that's something that has had a lot of pushback, but has also shown to be very successful in preventing, again, the long-term goal of drug overdoses. Yeah, and one of the ones that popped through um, the news cycle and made headlines uh, back uh, a couple months ago was the crack pipe sleeve thing, if you remember that one, where everybody mm-hmm. got in an uproar because they were, well, because the problem is, they were sharing pipes and spreads hepatitis C and we're having HIV spikes in drug communities and everything else. So they were trying to do that and everybody went, no, 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 they're giving out crack pipes. It's like, well, these are people that's going to do that anyway. So th- this goes back and I'm going to ask the question again, cause we touched on it at the beginning of our conversation, but I think it bears emphasis. How do you have that conversation with somebody who's just going to hear the term pipe or just going to hear the term injection site or syringe, and they're just going to recoil is there any way to have that conversation with someone's like, no, you can't go from zero to 60 on addiction. You've got to give them some intermediate steps. These are those intermediate steps, or you get these communicable diseases that are not going to stay confined to just the drug community. Unfortunately, what I found when speaking with individuals who don't condone harm reduction, who do get that pushback is they have yet to experience something that in their life. And life is part of living and learning. And not that I would ever wish anyone to themselves or have a loved one who has been through um, drug addiction, but it's really something that you don't think that is important and steps that need to be taken unless you lived it yourself or been in that situation or lived in those communities. 
So until we are able to have those open conversations and learn from each other, I honestly don't know how we're going to get over this negative stigma of individuals who do need assistance when working with drug abuse. Now, you had touched on the one that's the real uh, firing point for a lot of the debate over the drug. You bring up decriminalization. Get into the nomenclature for me because legalizing and decriminalization are two different things. So how are you using it and define the term for folks so that they all know what we're talking about here? Absolutely. Thank you for bringing that up, Andrew. So there are different definitions for decriminalization. And a lot of different countries or even states, as I cited within the article for Oregon, define it in different ways. For myself, I would see decriminalization as non-punishable depending upon the amount of drug. And when I say decriminalization, I also mean decriminalizing, making legal, non-punishable, all drugs that we're seeing. I think it's also important to note too, by doing so, we can really work on the racial bias that we're seeing. We can work on um, the diseases that are being spread. We can work on the corruption that's occurring. We can also work on taking away the power of these, of these drug smugglers and drug traffickers themselves. We started out talking about the war on drugs and the history of it. We mentioned the opioid crisis. What's some of the lessons from the war on drugs that we should be applying to the opioid crisis? How much of it is a continuation and maybe an evolving of the same problem? How much of it is a very different thing that should be addressed differently, do you think? I think that the opioid crisis is something that should be should be addressed separately. And unfortunately, I see it being ongoing. There have been three waves in the opioid crisis. The first being, unfortunately, the abuse of prescription drugs, which was the over, which was caused by overprescribing the opioid, as you produce pharma. Going on to second, given the fact that supply and demand was interrupted by this, um, individuals were the high, the demand was high for opioids but the supply wasn't there. So then you are seeing the second wave individuals shifting to heroin. And now in our third wave, which is even more deadlier, it's fentanyl, which is also, as I've already discussed, combined with cocaine, methamphetamine, heroin, which is also driving our drug overdoses. So unfortunately, we really have to take this opioid crisis completely different because what we're seeing is that it's going in waves for us in this country. And as of right now, we are starting to shift primarily into a fourth wave where I do believe that instead of being reliant upon opioids such that are plant-based in themselves, we're going to start seeing a lot more deaths as we have already seen with fentanyl that are man-made. I really do think that we're starting to make a move because of opioids into a more synthetic space for drug use. And that's just going to become even more deadlier for us. Yeah, it's going to be more deadly for the people. And it's going to be a whole lot harder to police because now you don't need a supply chain. You can make this stuff in your sink. It's going to be a real big mess. Let, let, let's round this off this way. Uh, Finesse Moreno Rivera joining us. Um, how do we we understand the federal government is a leviathan and it's hard to get a hold of it for any good reason whatsoever? What can the average person do to start talking about this? I'm talking about on their social media. I'm talking about amongst their friends and family when these things come up, maybe in their communities, when they're having, you know, a community meeting about 
you know, we just had it in Parkersburg, West Virginia, where they shut down trying to get a rehab for something they built, even though they badly need one because the residents freaked out. Stuff like that. How can people in a practical way, not buzzwords, not theory, not, you know, the big things we talk about, just when they're talking to each other on Facebook or texting or whatever the case may be, that can move this conversation forward, that they can start mixing into their discussions of, hey, this is actually a problem that we all need to deal with and we can do this X, Y, Z. I think it's really important for there to be open you know, conversation and discussion, similar to what you just said, Andrew, being able to be open and speaking with others. I think it's also very important that we continue to educate each other. A lot of times, again, thinking about a socioeconomic level, just really having uh, those silos created, you know, unfortunately, really can hamper our conversations about things that may be affecting others more than ourselves. I think that just taking the time to also getting to know your community, getting to know your neighbor, paying attention to what's going on within your surroundings as well, because when you open your eyes, you're walking down streets, no matter if it's within a small town, with, with, whether that's in a city, you can really tell the detriment that has occurred due to drug use, uh, drug abuse, um, and so I think it's really time for us as a country to really open our eyes, be honest, take responsibility, and start making the movement to help these individuals in taking a more health avenue rather than taking a more punitive one. All the music on her tell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. So much